The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to GDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas, and I'm so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. My guest this morning is Dr. Flora Vaccarino. Dr. Vaccarino is the Harris Professor at the Child Study Center and Professor of Neuroscience at Yale University. She directs the Developmental Neurobiology Laboratory and the Program in Neurodevelopment and Regeneration at Yale. Dr. Vaccarino's lab uses animal models and human brain tissue to unravel the pathophysiology of neuropsychiatric disorders. Wow, that's a mouthful. Welcome, Dr. Vaccarino. Thank you so much for, for making uh, this time. You know, in, pre- <laughs> in preparation for our show, I, I, I did do some reading to try to make sure I had a working sense of, of your work and the implications of it. But I'm going to defer to you and ask you to please just describe what you're working on in terms of the research and where you see this going with respect to autism and the, or any other uh, uh, challenges. Well, thank you, Dr. Romans, for inviting me to this uh, program. Uh, I'd like to preface by saying that I'm a psychiatrist myself, um, and uh, so I'm, I'm deeply interested in in the outcome of our research, and that's why I entered into this field, which is you could call it developmental neurobiology, but the aim is to really find some solutions for our patients. And um, so so basically, I, I don't know where to start because I started as a somebody looking at animal model, like you said, and we did that for about 20 years or 15 maybe. Let's not make me too old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then um, this new technology came about in our field, which is the possibility of deriving uh, pluripotent cells, which is a a mouthful too, but basically it means a cell like like a stem cell that can generate many other cells in your body, just like a very early cells in the human embryo, right? So you can now generate these cells in vitro by a simple biochemical procedure from any cell of the body of a person. So it could be a living person that you take a little sample of cells. It could be blood, it could be skin, it could be anything that survives in a dish, and then you make that into a pluripotent or a stem-like cells. And then you take these cells and you save them in your freezer, and you generate many from each person, and then you can just use them to do research. And, it, it, you know, in a way is is a research that's really targeted to that particular person. So let's, okay. let's spend one, just one second, since I, I, I'm experiencing this very much like the listeners, and I want to make sure that, that I understand it uh, or as best I can a, as well. Uh, so if the uh, pluripotent cells can be uh, developed I- I- in vitro, 
then that, I think, eliminates some of the com- controversy around destroying embryonic cells. We can use something, right, that w- without without having that same level of, uh, of criticism around that. Correct. And if I understand you correctly, they can be matched exactly to to individuals so that uh, and, and to that extent, their trajectory can be extremely broad. Uh, are we on the right track here? Yeah. So first of all, let me answer the first question. One of our first discovery was that we genotyped these cells. We, we did whole genome sequencing and verified that they maintain the genomic background of each person. Sure. Number two, um, yes, we in our studies, we did find that each person uh, cells behave in a slightly different way, which is dependent on that genetic background. So um, what we do, we take these cells and we make what's something that's called the brain organoid, which in another mouthful, but it, what it means is essentially a mini model of a brain, very small, few millimeters, uh, but recapitulates the growth and development of some of the, most of the neurons, at least that develop in a normal brain, right? And so basically it's like in a movie, you recapitulate, you go backward and recapitulate the development of the brain of that person. Of course, it's not perfect, you know, because it's not the real thing, you know, it doesn't have many of the cells in the real embryo, it's a very small, but it's surprisingly faithful because people have done, including us, comparative studies between real embryonic and fetal brains and these brain organoids, and they do share many characteristics. So um, so we could kind of say that um, these trajectories of brain development in these organoids in a dish uh, can potentially illuminate aspects of real development of that particular person. And if that person has a disease, we reasoned perhaps it can illuminate some aspect of that altered, or I wouldn't call it disease necessarily, but mm-hmm. let's say, let's say you know, uh, a different trajectory than what's sure. observed. Yeah. So let's spend a moment on the organoid because for a lot of us, that's a new concept, and to the extent that it is reflecting brain development, however small. Is it reflecting the earliest kind of an earlier stage in brain development or Ex- extremely early? That's what I thought. So early that you can study them in any other way. And that's we discovered that very quickly because one of the first experiments we did, we did that comparison, real brain and organoids. We derived organoids from fetal fibroblast, which are skin cells from a postmortem embryo, fetal uh, specimen. And we had the brain of that specimen and we did comparative studies and we found that organoid can illuminate much earlier stages. Basically this transition between a pluripotent cells, a very early stem cells, a dividing cell, and then the stages in which that cell decides to be neuron A, neuron B, neuron C, glial cells, other cell types. So those are decisions that are extremely important, they happen very early, and they basically anticipate the the future development of that particular individual. So can we assume that because the the organoid reflects such an early uh, moment in development, because it's produced in vitro and not 
doesn't hold the same kind of controversy as a stem cell. What I'm thinking is that because this organoid, organoid reflects such an early point, uh, a moment in development, that it lends itself to manipulation, mm-hmm. right? Manipulation, which would allow some anticipation, I guess, of where things will ultimately go developmentally with respect to neurogenesis and such. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, first of all, it is man- you can manipulate the system because right. it's an in vitro system. There are no ethical controversies about that. Uh, it's not a, a real embryo, you know. It's right. something that's actually generated, you know, from from cells, you know, of one person. And so, you know, it's it's an experiment in a way. So, yes, for example, say you find that there is some altered expression of a gene, you can mm-hmm. try to correct that and then see how the development progresses longitudinally you know day by day because that's the other thing you know you can look at the same cells on on a longitudinal track right Mm -hmm. and what's day time one time two time three time four so we keep them in vitro for months and it takes about the same time as it happens in vivo Mm. so uh, you know, it's amazing, y- you know, in a mouse, you have a brain in one week, in a human, you have a brain in several months. And the same is in these cells, it's like the human, you know, it doesn't become, so it takes about the same time to generate a neuron from a progenitor cells as it does in vivo in these organoids in vitro. And we reach a stage where we can actually see neurons, we can actually see glial cells. And so it gets to, and the neurons are active, they fire. Like, like they do, you know, in, in the real brain. So um, it, it can actually reach a fairly advanced stage of maturation, but not like that of, a say, a newborn. You know, it's still probably within the fetal, late fetal period. We're about to go to a break, but before we do, I just wanted to ask if, we, if there's time for a quick question. As you develop this organoid in vitro, does the process exactly replicate what's happening in vivo, is it the exact same process, or does it have to be in any way altered? In that, in that, by that means, it's exactly the same process, but it's simplified because it doesn't have some of the complexities that occur in vivo. For example, it doesn't have vasculature. It doesn't have some of the immune cells that infiltrate the brain very early. So there are some of these interactions that, at the moment, are right. difficult to reproduce, but. What's there, the elements, the essential is there. So the broad lines are essentially what they are in vivo. Yeah, I'm afraid we have to go for a quick break. Uh, stay with us. I says for the listeners, please stay with us. When we come, I know this has been very technical, but I think very important to set the stage. When we come back, I, what I'd love to do is continue our conversation and maybe look a, bit, look a little closely now to the implications of this work around developmental disability and what else you found in the animal models that you've worked with as a precursor to those insights as well. So stay with us. Much more to come. Thank you. Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm Dr. Michael Romas, continuing my conversation with Dr. Flora Vassarino 
on the subject of neurobiology, and I'm going to use the most important word of our last segment, organoids. <laughs> as, as I said in the very brief, uh, very brief uh, break, this is, this is a very technical conversation and, and, a, and a fascinating one. And what I'd like to do now is co- talk a little bit about the implications of your, of your work. Uh, perhaps how it reflects and builds on the work you've done in the animal models and what this can mean uh, for people on the spectrum. Okay, um, that's not an easy question to answer, but let me start, okay? Sure. Um, so what you can do with this system is doing things that you weren't able to do with animal models. And also, so what I mean is that look at individuals because patients are individuals. And as we know, uh, people in the autism spectrums and, and people in many neurodevelopmental disorders are not are not the same. And, and this is an important question that has vexed us for many years. And it, it, it's also difficult to overcome because often the research is done on animal models that are genetically homogeneous, or even if people that work in organoid often, they look at the most extreme cases. So they look at families that have the most severe form of a certain disorder, or they have a big gene deletion, or they have a a very strong genetic load. That's not true for most people. Mm -hmm. Most people in the spectrum, 90% of them, they don't even know what the causal gene is. We, We know it's genetic, but there isn't a single gene that's predominant. It's probably a multitude of genes, right? Right. So, so we decided to go that way, that is to look at patients the way they are. And we decided to make this uh, pluripotent line and these organoids now from every patient that was coming at the Child Study Center. And we started a collaboration with clinicians and over 10, 12 years, we amassed a tremendous number of lines. And we have about a thousand lines from over a hundred individuals now. And uh, that allows us to look at the population the way it is. And so we discovered in the case of autism, for example, that not everybody is the same. And we discovered that these organoids develop with different trajectories that although they're different than, so we compare, first of all, we compare patients with their family member that are not affected. So that's our main comparison. And we look at the system and say, okay, what's what's the difference, right? And Mm -hmm. we do many different type of assays. Some of them are genomic. Some of them are just looking at the cells, the way they divide, the way they grow, how many of us neuron of a certain type and how many neurons of another type. And we found that there are some imbalances in the in the way the neurons grow and develop. That is, there is too much of one type of neuron and too little of another one. Mm-hmm. But we found that this imbalance is not the same in every patient. Well, I just yeah. want to jump in for one second, just one second, because I believe you're about, to, I hope you are about to talk about the nature of the imbalance, but in, in, in the nature of the imbalance, and I, I believe if my understanding of it is correct, it is directly a function of the response to excitatory, both uh, as opposed to in, inhibitory, uh, uh, you know, neuron, neuron. But I guess what I wanted to uh, you know, kind of prepare the listeners for is that is that relationship to head circumference, which I think is going to surprise 
everybody. So, so I'm going to ask the li- listeners to hold on to their seats because this almost feels like a throwback. <laughs> but maybe you can explain that, please. Yeah, so we know we know that uh, a large, relatively large per- percent of patients with autism have something that's called large brain macrocephaly. Mm-hmm. We call it technically. It means a brain that's on the larger side at the upstream limit of normal, say ninety. 90- around 90% of what normal people, you know, you have a curve, you know, where people are more or less, you know, within a certain range, a percent of patients with autism are in the upper range. So we divide a patient in these two categories, those that had the head circumference brain, which corresponds to pretty much brain size at the upper limit and those that they didn't, that were more normal size. And so we found that this imbalance, and we found an imbalance in the way these excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons grow in this organoid. Mm-hmm. Okay, so meaning that the, the type of cells that actually develop are not the same as the control. So say, for example, in a control, you have 50% excitatory neuron and 50% inhibitory neuron. In the patients, you had 70% excitatory neuron and 30% inhibitory. I'm just making up the figure. In the patients that had large brains, large herces conference, you had more excitatory neurons than the control. In the patients that had normal brain circumference, you had a deficit in this excitatory neuron with respect to control. So the imbalance went in two opposite directions according to the head size. And I can speculate with you why that is important and why we should know that. Oh, please do. I mean, I, I, I certainly would, would want to know that. I know our listeners will want to know that. Yeah, let's let's begin right there. Why is, why is that important? You put it perfectly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important because if this does correspond to something that happens in vivo in these patients, if you have mm-hmm. too many excitatory neurons, your brain excitability may be higher. And in fact, some patients with autism, we know that have subclinical seizures, may some of them even epilepsy, not many, but, yeah. uh, you know, okay. it does it does happen. And, and so in general, if your excitability is higher because you have an imbalance in ex- and too many excitatory neurons with respect to the inhibitory neuron, you may want to use treatments that correct that, right? Whereas if you have in, a defect in excitatory neurons, you may not want to use the same treatment. You want to use a different treatment, a treatment right. that boosts the excitation rather than dampening the excitation. So the, the example I'm making is, is simplistic because this is still an in vitro system that needs to be verified. But just to say that perhaps patients are not all the same, may even they may even have opposite type of alterations, which, which is still an alteration because you need to have you you need to meet that nice balance in order for the brain to function normally. So you can easily imagine that you have an excess of a certain neurons, you have a defect of a certain neurons. You you may have you know abnormalities in both cases, but the treatment may be very different. That's that yeah. So potentially one of the part of the importance would be the potential over time, the implications for uh, prescriptions for treatment, uh, possibly for treatment. And I think you've suggested that it's a, it's a continuum. It's not, it's not, a, it's a continuum which we could look at people. And it sounds to me that this is probably going to be a little important for me and for listeners. We cannot, I don't think, infer just by looking at somebody who might have a larger head circumference that they aren't necessarily going to be on the on the spectrum, of course not. 
But so I think I think as I see you nodding, I think you're in agreement there. But just one 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 aside, you know, one more point to that: the excitatory neuron activity that might have lent itself to the larger circumference. Is there also any connection between that activity and the greater sensitivity uh, sense issues that many people on the spectrum experience? Uh, it, it's it's too difficult to speculate, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Right. Because excitation is one, you know, it's a major type of cells that bring sensation from the periphery to the brain and from the certain regions to the brain that receive the sensation to the regions that elaborate the sensation, like the cerebral cortex, for example. So, so excitatory neurons are fundamental in that. And now I, I should say there is a, a cautionary tale that we we have not looked at a, a lot of patients. We're still at the beginning of this study, so I cannot really say that all patients with large brain or large head are going to have an excess of excitatory neuron. We are in the process of verifying that in another set of studies with more additional individuals. And so this needs to be confirmed before it can be used in you know in clinical practice or even starting to think about treatment you know so i I really need to say that yeah but potentially potentially would be very important for clinical trials no i i I appreciate i appreciate qualifying that i my my understanding is this preliminary preliminary work uh with respect to human beings have has been sons, sons who are affected, and and fathers who have not been. So it's a predominantly or maybe exclusively male sample. Is that correct? At the moment, unfortunately, it's only male. We're in the process of recruiting females. We're waiting, you know, very anxiously to be funded by the federal government. We have a project uh, that we submitted that where we exactly want to start looking at females exactly the same way. You know, this this went way, way, way too fast. So I'm absolutely going to need for you to come back for part two next week. We'll die, dive a little bit deeper, if, if that were even possible. And we'll talk about where this is going, please. And maybe do a little bit around explaining in greater detail what's going on even in the moment. So, uh, Dr. Vaccarina, thank you so much for your time. I, I, I can't wait to continue. So, you're listening to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM. Be sure to join us next week. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.